morning again. I get the opportunity to welcome you twice this morning. Um, you might have picked up on my beard. looks a little different than Kyle's. He's out of town on vacation this week, and I personally love it because the one Sunday that he would love to have been in here in all his glory of his maroon shirt, and he's gone, and he's not allowed to stand before you and mock you. We're in a study in the book of Joshua, and we began last week. If you weren't with us, um, we started off in chapter 1, and so we are moving to chapter 2, as you heard Tammy read uh, this morning. And this book is titled Joshua, of course. We know uh, that uh, we see as we met Joshua last week, and we'll continue to read of his story Um, Joshua, Moses' assistant, the man called by God to lead his people. But as always, when we read our Bibles and we study them, um, the main character of the story is God. And so we um, don't want to miss this. And it's a beautiful uh, opportunity for us to just revel and look at all that God does. And ultimately, as we've sung so often this morning already, of God's faithfulness. In Joshua chapter 1, just as a quick review, God promised Joshua, he's speaking to Joshua, and he says that I'm going to send you into this land that I promised to your forefathers. And in verse 3, he says that every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. Because of God's promise and out of his promise, his faithfulness, he says, I'm going to do what I said many years ago, generations ago. I'm going to fulfill that promise God had made a promise to the Israelites, and it was based upon that promise that he told Joshua to go. And it was based upon that promise that he gave Joshua the command to be strong and courageous. That strength and that courage that Joshua was supposed to pull from, was supposed to sort of um, uh, you know, muster up as he faced all the challenges that were before him was not something that he contained from within himself, but it was based on remembering God's promise. What a helpful reminder it is to us as we face all of the challenges that this life can bring us, all of the brokenness of this world, that when we face those things, that we remember God's promise to us. And we reviewed, I'd encourage you, if you missed last week, you can go back and wherever you find a podcast, you can find that message. But reminding ourselves of God's promises to us, and it's out of remembering what God has already said to us. And for those of us who now live in the New Testament days, we know all of the promises that Jesus made to us, that God made to us through Christ, and it's based on those promises that we live our lives, that we can take off into the world and be in some senses, strong and courageous. God didn't just tell Joshua to take over the land. He didn't give him a command to be strong and courageous without first reminding him of who he was, his promises. But as we'll see as we get to chapter 2, God didn't tell Joshua how he was supposed to do this. There wasn't a lot of clarity. There weren't clear military instructions. Again, Joshua, if you remember what I said last week, Moses asked that God would give the people of Israel a shepherd when he was asking God to give him someone to pass on his mantle of leadership. He asked God to give him a shepherd, not a warrior. Joshua had led some battles and had been victorious, but ultimately he asked God to give him a shepherd. But as Joshua takes off and knows this calling that God has put on his life to lead the people into the promised land, he also knows that the land is occupied by many enemies. 
And what we can know for sure is, is that the people who occupied the land that God had promised to his people weren't going to just say, hey, we're glad you're here. Welcome home. We're going to go ahead and move out now so you can kind of take over. They weren't going to do that. And so we have to think about, and in chapter 2, we begin to see how Joshua would take steps. And this morning in this chapter, one of the most famous chapters, at least in my mind in the Bible, in terms of the story and the characters within it, we're going to read the story of one of the most amazing events, a story of redemption that should give us all hope, a story about the most unlikely character who had every reason to think God had given up or would not care about them, who ultimately would be remembered for generations. By the way, Aggies, I am not talking about Zach Calzada right now. (laughs) Just wanted you to stay with me here. We're talking about Rahab, the story of Rahab. So Joshua, not knowing exactly what he was supposed to do in terms of not being given strict instructions or clear instructions by God on how he was supposed to fulfill this promise. In verse 1 it says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly to Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So realizing that he is now in its time to move at the end of chapter 1, he had gone out and he had told all of the people that we're about to take off, we're about to move into this promised land that God gave us, this land that God gave us to rest in, that was the fulfillment of his promises to us. But before we do that, Joshua sends two spies. Now you might remember another biographical point about Joshua was that he was one of the 12 spies that had originally gone into the promised land. And he was only one of two, though, that came back with the report that I think we can take them. All the rest were faithless. They didn't believe that they had any hope to take the land. And so because of that, that's why that generation was not allowed to enter into the promised land, because of their lack of faith. And so he sends two spies, and I think to myself, okay, Joshua, you remember how this went when the spies went last time? Are we sure we should do this again? That's, this is not in the Bible. This isn't clear. This is just my theory. I think that's why he only sent two. He knew at least he had two friends that weren't going to be fools and come back and say, we can't take them. And so remembering that and knowing that he sends these two spies to go into the land and to investigate, and specifically he wants to investigate, investigate Jericho directly across the Jordan River. And as we're going to read next week and dive into this even further, the Jordan River is at its max capacity right now. Its banks are overflowing because it's the harvest season. And the, the river widens essentially. There's so much water flowing through it that it gets wide. Jericho is directly opposite this. And Jericho is a military stronghold, a very powerful city. And so he wants to understand before he goes in what is happening, what he's doing. And so he tells them, go and scout out Jericho. Now some might say, and it's thoughtful to think of this, is God has promised this land to us, and Joshua knows the promise, wherever your foot will tread, that land has been given to you. And so this act of sending spies could perhaps be interpreted in some way as a lack of faith. He should have just told the people, he told them to get together and just to start marching. But taking some time to develop a plan to figure out what it is that he was supposed to do is not a lack of faith. It's just, it's good leadership. 
good shepherding. These are people that have been entrusted to his care. And he wants to do what he's been called to do with wisdom and discernment and to the best of his ability. We can know, by the way, that this isn't viewed by God even, who is the one that only one that really matters, as a lack of faith because he didn't rebuke Joshua for sending spies, just like he had done in the previous generation. Or he didn't send the people and say, okay, you clearly don't have faith. There's a lot of talk, I think these days, I don't know if you've heard this, but a lot of talk in our culture about faith and fear and faith over fear and how we should respond to God when there's challenges before us. Should we just move and start marching or should we take steps? Should we be wise and discerning? And it seems to be pitting faith against reasoned action. This is an error when we think of faith in this way because this isn't what faith is. Reason and faith are not enemies. As Christians, when we engage in the scientific community, we speak confidently knowing that creation will testify to God. We tell people all of the time, if you've ever been in a conversation with someone who is sort of investigative and maybe perhaps just has that scientific mindset that we don't check our reason, we don't check our minds at the door when we follow the Lord. So pitting this idea of reason and faith against one another is a misstep by the people of God. We don't have to check our faith at the door when we use the common gifts that God has given us to make reasoned decisions. And this is what Joshua is trying to do. Joshua has been told to lead his people into the promised land. He was not told how. He was not given explicit instructions. He didn't have the, he couldn't look at his Bible and say, well, this is exactly the steps that God gave me to take. I don't know about you. Have you faced decisions in your life? And you've thought to yourself, if you've wanted and you've wished, I don't know, I'm like this. I wish the Lord had explicitly spelled this one out in the Bible. I wish he had given me exact instructions as if I'm supposed to go left, then right, two steps forward, three steps to the right again. I, that's not what we always have in our text. That's not what the God gives us. He very often gives us clear instructions, but often he doesn't. He gives us principles to live by. Joshua had been given a mind. Joshua had been given abilities. Joshua had been given specific gifts, and he had been called by God, and he had then also been given a promise by God, and he was demonstrating the results of that promise because he'd already had favor with the people. Again, if we go back to chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, the people respond to Joshua and say, Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, this is the people responding to Joshua, whatever you command him, he shall be put to death. Only, again, Joshua is told, be strong and courageous. So Joshua has seen God move and has heard the promises of God, and now he's responding with everything that he has at his capacity, everything that he has available to him, he's using to try and figure out how is it that I am going to lead these people into the promised land, into the place that God has given us. How do I bring us to be in a place where we can actually set our foot upon that land? He was believing fully in the promise of God and using everything that God had said. So one of the lessons that we can learn by looking at Joshua is that faith isn't just taking actions blindly. That's not a demonstration of faith. 
Joshua didn't demonstrate a lack of faith by using all of the common gifts. We call these sometimes today the common grace of God. We have been given, all of us, the common graces of God in so many different ways. You are gifted in a certain capacity. You have been created specifically for whatever role and whatever task God has created you to do. He's told you who he is. He's told you, again, reminding the, remembering the promises of God, that you cannot lose your life because Christ has already laid down his life for you. In knowing all of these things, acknowledging all of these things is true, we can take steps. So when we face uncertain decisions, when we face things that we're not sure, should we turn to the left or to the right? We can evaluate those things based upon the common grace of God and the gifts that he's already given us, as well as the things that he has said, the promises that he has made, even when it's not clear. So Joshua sends the spies, and what they do is they find themselves in Jericho. They pick up and we meet this character, Rahab. And they went in and came into the house. This is beginning in verse 2. They, excuse me, the end of verse 1. And they went in and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, men, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went out. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flask that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the, way, on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So it's interesting, the men, these two spies, they find their way into Rahab's house. Immediately, the king is alerted. Somehow, the king knows exactly who is there and where they are. So there were clearly some other folks looking around and found the spies. These spies weren't that great. They didn't hide themselves all too well. And so they go into Rahab's house. Immediately, the king sends directly to Rahab's house. It doesn't look like he had to send out much of a search party to find them. Maybe he did, but we are at least recorded. What's recorded for us is that the people quickly find Rahab. They quickly find out that the people are there, that these spies are there, so they go to confront her. And it's amazing that the very first sentence where we are introduced to Rahab, and they came in to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. When we read this story, it's natural for us to think of Rahab and the bluntness of the Bible of God's word to tell us her profession and think about this woman as very lost, very broken. We can begin to paint her sometimes in the light or in a picture that is very different from us. She's a sinner. She's a pagan. She does not follow God. She's in a city that God has said will be destroyed because he's giving it to his people. There is every reason for us to pity Rahab and to think of her as less or maybe perhaps below us. But this is where we make a mistake because we take that scripture, we hear of who Rahab is, 
And in our pride, we very quickly begin to think of ourselves as better than she is, as above her. She is a very broken woman. She is a lost woman. But we can forget, when we focus here on Rahab, we can forget that every single person in this city was facing the same fate that Rahab faced. Every single person that possessed this land currently faced the same fate that Rahab would face. They were all enemies of God. People that God would dispossess from this land so that he could fulfill his promise to his people. And the whole land is filled with these people. People who deserve God's judgment and people who would soon receive God's judgment. And so Rahab was just one of many. In some ways, Rahab, as we meet her, she's a representative of the whole of all of these people. But isn't it amazing that what, who, the one that God uses and the story that God reveals to us in Scripture is the one that our minds would think to ourselves is the furthest from being used by God or having any opportunity for redemption. There's every reason as we read that sentence alone and we don't hear the rest of the story. If we just stop there in our Bibles, we would think, yes, she is going to be set apart and described in such a way that would show God's justice, how God deals with sinners, how God deals with broken people. And we would begin to think in the sense of God's destruction of her, God's casting her out. But this is the amazing thing about God. He does the exact opposite with her. Everything that we would do in this situation, if we were God, he does the exact opposite of that. One of the things that we have to learn, and I hope as we continue to dive into this book, and really in any time we look at the scriptures, God is so other than us. He does things completely differently in some ways, 180 degrees opposite of what we would do in the way that we would handle situations if we found ourselves to be God. Because God is a God of redemption. He's a God of grace and mercy. And we see that, we're going to see that in Rahab's life. Rahab had no reason to hope. And ultimately, though, she would hope. This next, the next, that section that I just read we see Rahab interacting with the king or the king's men as they come to search her out and she tells them that they're not here. She goes so far, you can see her sort of um, uh, ability to think on the spot. More than likely, it wouldn't be surprising if the king's men had showed up at her house before and she'd told a few lies before. She was ready with an answer. She sends them out, but also doesn't just send them out, says, no, they're not here anymore. She sends them on a wild goose chase, says they already left town, go follow after them, gets rid of them, knowing that she had taken the men up and she had hidden them on the stairs. You know, you might feel this morning insecure. You may ask yourself whether it's this morning or tomorrow morning or the next day or some other point in your life, does God love you? You may have asked yourself or be asking yourself this morning, could God love you? Is it possible? 
You may be filling in as I think of and describe Rahab. You may be saying to yourself, yeah, it's pretty interesting. You think oh, she might be bad. If you only knew and you're filling in the blank with things in your life, whether they're present or they're past or whatever situation you're saying to yourself, there's no hope for me. If God was going to destroy Rahab, if God had a reason to cast her out, if God had a reason to forget her, then he surely has a reason to forget me. Then let us rejoice together as we look at Rahab, because here is Rahab. God is very aware of her sin. He says it bluntly, so clearly, the house of a prostitute. We get uncomfortable. I know some of you are squirming and you're asking yourselves, how many times are you going to read that word? This is who she was. God knew that recorded in all of history. This is who God knew her to be. And God isn't ashamed of her. He isn't ashamed of her. He's so unashamed of her that he includes her in our Bibles. We're going to get to how often or how much he includes her in a few moments. You know, some translators of the Bible, they take... These are early translators, not so much recent days, but some early translators of the Bible wanting to protect in some ways the character of God because of the way that God uses Rahab and wanting to protect the character of God. They change that word in the Bible to say an innkeeper, feeling as if they need to do something to protect the integrity of God. There's no way that we could allow God to use someone that is so far away from him and so far opposite of his character. How could he use that person? How could that person be redeemed? Brothers and sisters, the reason that we are here is because we are just like Rahab with no reason for hope, no opportunity for hope, and we have been redeemed. We've been made new just like Rahab. And so if we think to ourselves, and we put Rahab in this category over here, and we say to ourselves, yeah, no, she's, whew, that one was rough. Not real sure about her. Put yourself in that category. God could, and he does in some ways. He looks, yeah, real rough. But guess what? My love is greater than whatever roughness, whatever scars, whatever damage, however you might feel. My grace and my mercy is sufficient and overcomes all of those things. There's no one too far from God. That's what we learn as we look at the story of Rahab. The people who wanted to change the translation, they wanted to paint Rahab in a little better light. This is what we've come to know. I hope you know this. There's no better light to be painted in than a sinner who's been transformed by the grace of God, whose life has been completely changed by God alone. Rahab had no reason to be hopeful. She had no reason to believe that God would know her, that God would use her, most of all that God might remember her, but using Rahab is what brought God the most glory. And it was surely the thing that brought Rahab very much good. And that's what God does. The king's men, they chase after the spies. And then Rahab, and what you heard Tammy read for us, in a sense testifies to who she knows God to be. See, here in this story, in this passage, we see that God had already moved. Look again at verse 8. 
before the men lay down. She had taken them up to her rooftop. She had laid them down. There was flax that she had laid, and so they could lay long ways in the flax and be hidden. And she said to the, this is what she says to the men. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites when you were beyond, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, here's her testimony, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. He is God. She had no reason to have hope or to believe that God could use her, but because God had already moved, she had believed. She had believed so much that she recognized she had to do what seemed unthinkable, to hide these spies. Guess what? Her life was on the line. The kings then clearly knew where she lived. Her, as we are going to hear and we read further, her whole family's life is on the line in this situation. She's willing to risk all of that in obedience to who God is because God had already moved. God had already shown her. So often, I think we miss, we forget to look around us and see how God has already moved, the fact and the reality that God has moved. I want to encourage you. Think back to your own salvation. The first time that you, like Rahab, might say, this is how God made me aware of who he is. This is how God revealed himself to me. This is how God changed my life. This is how God told me that he was the God of the heavens and the earth. If you think back to that moment, if you were old enough, I believe you'll remember and you'll see that God had already moved in so many different ways in your life to bring people around you, to bring these messengers, to put you in that relationship, to take you to that location, that city, that job. God had already moved in so many different ways because he has gone ahead of you and because he was in the process of redeeming your life. And so as we face, even today, various challenges, and there are many, <laughs> perhaps as many as your life, you may have ever felt like you faced in your life before, remember, remember who God is, and remember what he's already done. And it's as we remember those things that then we can take steps of faith. Rahab demonstrated great faith by hiding the spies. And that faith was in response to what God had said and done already in her life. What has God said and done already in your life? How has he already redeemed you and given you hope and taken you from a place of death and raise you to life through Christ. Remember what God has said and done. And then, out of that, we can take steps of faith. Ultimately, Rahab had no idea how God would use her. She may have felt, 
And it's more than likely that she probably thought in this moment, I'm just going to do this because I know, as the scripture says, our hearts had melted away. She knew that God would have his way and there was nothing that she could do to stand in the way of God. And so in her mind, I've seen him move. I've seen what he does. I know who he is. I want to be on that team. I want to be on his side. I want to serve that God. And ultimately, in an abundance of his grace and mercy. Again, you think God would be ashamed of Rahab? God would list her in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, by faith, again, doesn't back away from who she was. The prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Hebrews chapter 11 lists out great heroes of our faith, People who were used by God in powerful ways. If you grew up going to Sunday school, what I can tell you is all the Sunday school stories are retold very briefly in Hebrews chapter 11. All our Old Testament talked about in Hebrews 11. And God includes Rahab even more than that. Rahab is in the lineage of Christ himself. Rahab, the prostitute, out of her faith and her obedience to God, is used by God so much so that she is listed in the lineage of Christ, our Savior. Do you think God is ashamed of you because of your sin? Do you think there's no possible way that your life could be used by God if he understood whatever might be behind you? whatever you might be in the middle of in this very moment? Do you think that it's impossible that God could love you? Friends, Rahab is a beautiful and powerful testimony to who our God is, how different he is than us. You are loved by God unconditionally. There is no condition that you could find yourself in that could separate you from the love of God. If you're not a Christian today and you've thought to yourself, I can't worship this God who would judge me and condemn me and call my situation sinful, know that God looks upon your life and he fills in the blank with whatever you might substitute for the word prostitute, and he says, and even still, I love you. That's the God that we worship. If you're a Christian this morning, you need to remember what the book of Romans says about us. There is now therefore no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We cannot be condemned because God has already condemned the sins of the world through our Savior Jesus. So you wonder why we sing to Jesus, you wonder why we gather together to worship Him, is because it is through Him that we receive the mercy of Christ. So I want to plead with you Don't shrink back. Don't feel like you're unlovable. Don't feel like you can't be used by God. Don't feel like God has no place for you because of something in your past. Don't let the sinfulness of other people who perhaps have attacked you, rebuked you, accused you, been used in some way, not the way that God would treat you, to cause you to forget or to not hear these words. God... And his abundance of grace and mercy loves you.
He has a plan and a purpose for your life. And my testimony and the testimony of so many others in this room is that we understand what Christ has done for us. We understand that we would rightly have been condemned by God. But now, because of his great love for us, we'll never be condemned by God. So I want to invite you to believe in that God, to follow that God, to know that God, the God of the Bible who redeems people like Rahab, people like me, people like you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God of redemption. You're a God of hope. You're a God who loves us unconditionally. And I pray in this moment, Holy Spirit, would you take all of the lies of the enemy, all of the doubts that so often sort of sit on our hearts and minds and I know can prevent us from hearing from you, from knowing who you are. Holy Spirit, would you tear down those walls like you tore down the walls of Jericho? Would you assure every soul in this room of the power that you hold? power of your love. I thank you, Father, that you get such great glory from redeeming great sinners like me. That's what you do. And again, I pray that everyone in this room would know that. Help us to live take steps of faith this week in response to this understanding of who you are. Help us to worship you with our lives, to give you all the glory in every single detail, in every action we take, looking at how we can glorify your name, realizing that just as it was for Rahab, your glory leads to our good. Thank you, Lord. We praise you this morning. We do it all in the name of Christ. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we look forward to seeing you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.